this morning. Uh, if you're new in particular, welcome. Uh, today actually marks the one month in this new building uh, as kind of a, a replant of the church uh, that started a few months ago. So we're all kind of new, uh, and we're glad that you're joining us this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but before we open the scriptures, let's pray. Jesus, um, as we open up um, to this um, ancient, um, provocative, challenging, uplifting um, sermon that you spoke on the side of a hilltop thousands of years ago, would you uh, bring these words to life for us? And Jesus, you are um, the master intellect, you're the master teacher, you're the master um, rabbi, so to speak. Um, Would you um, teach us? Would you instruct us? Um, Holy Spirit, would you be at work among your people today as we actually come before you and ask that you would change us and shape us? We we open ourselves up to that, um, heart, mind, and soul, and we trust you to do that, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 20, and we'll get started. The Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who don't know, uh, starts at the beginning of Matthew 5, and it is perhaps the most well-known block of teaching in all of the scriptures, and um, arguably... It is the most influential teaching in uh, world history. And uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, or his talk on a hill, uh, by announcing that um, blessing and grace are um, falling in unexpected places, and that the kingdom of God is available to you. And so you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you feel from God, uh, are actually now, curiously, unexpectedly, on the inside. You're included in God's new, radical, in-breaking kingdom. And and so now, uh, having made that announcement, he's going to sink into what does life in the kingdom look like? So uh, first, you have to understand that even if the world tells you you're less than, or even if the world tells you that you're out, um, God himself welcomes you in. And and now you become a central part of God's redemption plan. You are, in the words of Jesus, salt and light to the world. You are part of his treasured community through which the world is being saved and transformed. And so there is a sense, Jesus says, in which this is all um, radical and new and kind of disorienting, Um, but I'm not here to replace everything that you've built your lives around. And he's speaking to ancient Israelites. So I'm not here to replace what you as an individual or what your community has built their lives around in uh, the Bible of their day, the Torah and the law, but rather I'm going to fulfill those things And you, uh, in me, and as a part of what I'm doing, you are also going to fulfill these things. 
Uh, But as part of that fulfillment of everything that God intended for His people, Jesus says, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees, which were the kind of religious leaders or the Bible teachers of the day. And Matt Karsh mentioned last week how culturally this would have been shocking to hear that. I mean, they've seen up to this point, they've seen the power of God at work in and through Jesus and healing and casting out demons and all of this kind of stuff that they know that he's the real deal. And so before he even goes up on this hillside to teach people about life in the kingdom, they're hanging on his words. They understand that he has a power and authority and that he comes from God. And, and that only makes his words all the more impactful. And so as they're listening, he, he takes their cultural expectations, everything that they've assumed, and he flips them upside down. And, and so now people are struggling to, to figure out, what does this all mean? And then, uh, although he's just challenged everything that they've ever known, uh, he's now claiming that I'm not throwing everything out, but, but rather... Uh, I'm here as the unexpected but long-anticipated fulfillment of everything that you've been studying and waiting for. But in order to to grasp the full impact of Jesus' statement about um, righteousness and the Pharisees, we have to understand a thing or two about the Pharisees themselves. As I mentioned a second ago, uh, the Pharisees were essentially the Bible teachers of the day. And if you know the story of the scriptures, you know that God um, called a people out of slavery and formed a covenant with them where he was committed to them. And as part of this covenant, he gave them a a law. He gave them a new vocation, a new purpose in the world, but then also this law uh, to, to live out as his covenant people. And as you read through the scriptures, those of you who are brave enough to just read cover to cover through the Old Testament, you know that it's a long, torturous, grueling story of God's people violating the covenant law over and over and over again. And after hundreds of years of constantly sending prophets and constant violation and, and ignoring God, he says, okay, I warned you in the beginning, if you do this for centuries, okay, now, now you're going to be removed from the land and sent into exile. That's the natural consequence. So they were, they were um, removed from the land. He uses Babylon to remove them from the land into exile. And they're in exile for 70 years. And then just as God said, after 70 years, um, you'll be freed from exile. Uh, but even as they're freed from exile in Babylon... Only a fraction of Israel actually returns to what we call the promised land, um, the land that that Israel was meant to occupy. So only a fraction return, um, and the the fraction that do return find themselves uh, actually still dominated by one foreign power after the next. Eventually, they find themselves under the authority of Rome, who's actually even worse than Babylon was. And so there's a sense in which, okay, officially your exile in Babylon is over, but there would have been a very real sense in the Jewish heart that we are still in exile. Most of Israel is still scattered all over the world. All of us are living under foreign oppression. And and so as they sat in exile, they began to long for uh, the freedom that God eventually promised, that eventually you will be freed from exile. And and so as they were um, in exile, they started to think. And they said, hey, well, we, we violated the covenant law, and now we've been sent into exile. So, um, if, and we're desperate to be freed from exile and foreign oppression. So, 
um, if we start obeying the covenant law again, then we should be released from exile, released from foreign oppression, and, and our oppressors should be brought to justice and overthrown. The kingdom of God, as it was promised through the Old Testament, will come. And to be fair, that, that's actually a pretty logical assumption for them to make. Okay, so we broke the law. We're removed from the land. Now if we follow the law, we should be back in. And, and so what they did, and the Pharisees in particular, um, began to take this very seriously. And they looked through the scriptures and the law given through Moses and all of that, and they discerned um, 613 commandments to follow in the Old Testament. And they said, uh, okay, we're, we're going to follow these, uh, which actually is, is, is great. Their hearts were in the right place. They said, our hope is in God. We want to be obedient to what he said throughout history. But ultimately, we're waiting for the kingdom, waiting for the Messiah. And we believe this is what will quicken that day, what will usher in the kingdom of God. So all of that is great. But the other thing that the Pharisees did is that in addition to the 613 commands of the Old Testament, they began to add their own rules and traditions and practices that they built into a book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah contained 1,500 additional commandments which they put together. And they zealously followed these rules, all of them, all 2,000 and some rules. And they believed that if everyone in Israel kept this law for a single day, then the kingdom of God would come. Right then and there. That's how zealous they were about this. And so they were seen by the Jewish community um, as sort of the most righteous people in Israel, which effectively, globally thinking about the empires that were known at that time, uh, they were the, the most righteous people on the planet. And now you have this Jesus character showing up and saying, hey, if you aren't more righteous than them, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? Is it, so no one, can anyone enter the, the kingdom of heaven? What are you saying, Jesus? I mean, if the standard of righteousness is the law, and we have to follow the law more closely than the Pharisees, then... then you're calling us to something that's impossible. I mean, what are we supposed to do? Follow more laws than they do? Should we come up with another 1,500 laws just to be safe and attempt to follow those as well? Jesus, how on earth can we be more righteous than them? How can we possibly enter the kingdom? And, and these questions would have been looming, just hanging in the air, beating violently against their chest as they listen to the words of Jesus. And so it's, it's with that backdrop and in that context that Jesus is going to reveal the true meaning behind the law and how we as his followers um, can actually operate in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven and by operating in the inbreaking kingdom actually fulfill the spirit behind what the law um, was meant to instill all along. And so with that um, statement about righteousness as this sort of provocative um, backdrop, now Jesus is going to go through six different comparisons. Six comparisons of the law as the Pharisees understood it and interpreted it, and the true meaning behind the law as God intended for his covenant people all along. And we're going to look at the first of those six comparisons um, right now. 
so rather than throwing out the law altogether, uh, Jesus is showing how the commandments uh, are actually going to provide for us a, a blueprint or a scaffolding which can be built out uh, into uh, th- this way of life that's, that's true and genuine and, and flourishing as God intended it to be. Because they're, they're sitting there asking, okay, how are we to respect the law and move past the righteousness of the Pharisees at the same time? How, how are we to operate in, in this new world that Jesus is unleashing? And so uh, that's what he's going to begin to answer right here. So we'll pick up in uh, verse 21. It says this. It says, You have heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Okay. So, so we have to unpack these words carefully because if we take this in the wrong direction, and there are a lot of directions you could take this, uh, we could end up with a whole bunch of strange assumptions uh, about the kingdom of God and hell and righteousness and judgment based on the words we just read. First off, Uh, Jesus is highlighting this week and in the weeks to come the difference between the basic law of God governing external actions and the internal law of God governing the heart. God is providing this uh, uh, amazing blueprint uh, for human life, but but we took it in a strange direction. We kind of took the law at its face, and then the Pharisees, and, and really just almost religion generally, kind of said, let's go this direction. And God said, no, 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 no. I intend you to take those commandments and take them in a different uh, direction. You're, you're living out kind of the letter of the law, and you're missing God's heart and the spirit behind it. Uh, many of you know that before I uh, was a pastor, I was actually a lawyer. And um, through three uh, grueling years of law school, and their, their goal is just to teach you how to think like a lawyer. And, and so you're not there to memorize so much as you are to, to think through, okay, how do I analyze uh, laws? How, how do I interpret them? Uh, what sort of things are there to think about when I approach uh, a law? And so um, w- within law school, we'd have these conversations about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Because the, the letter of the law on its face says whatever it says, no loitering after dark or, or whatever the law is, the ordinance. But behind that, there's this whole body of thought. It's intended to accomplish a certain end. And so we would have these conversations. Well, is it possible to then um, break the letter of this law while still fulfilling the spirit behind it and not violating what, what lawmakers are actually trying to bring about? And and, and on the other end, uh, is it possible to break uh, the the spirit of what's behind this while kind of fulfilling the letter of the law at the same time? Does that distinction kind of make sense? There's like what it says on its face, and then there's something uh, inherent buried behind it. 
Uh, and so as I was thinking through this, I, I kind of thought up all of these um, different technical examples from the law of, of the spirit versus the letter. Um, but I decided to throw those out and, and hopefully use an example that's a, a little more relevant to our daily lives. Because I'm sure a few of you um, are familiar with the finger game, which is also known as the I'm not touching you game. Okay, so if you've ever been a kid in the back seat of a minivan, you, you know what this game is. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're, you're sitting back there with your brother or your sister or whatever, uh, and, and slowly you and, and your sibling are arguing, and then, you're t- and then you're pushing, and then you're hitting, and it's getting louder and louder, and, and dad's in the front seat, and finally he leans back and says, Emily, don't touch your brother, right? Emily was my sister's name, not, not you, Emily, sorry. <laughs> Um, and, and so then all of a sudden it gets really quiet, right? And okay, back, back to peace and quiet. And, and you're driving along a little further, and all of a sudden uh, Emily gets a sly look on her face as she's thinking about what Dad said, right? And, and then she, she slowly leans over toward her brother and sticks out a finger closer and closer, and, and inches in front of his face she stops and says, I'm not touching you. And at that point, the, the, the brother, whoever he, he is, just, just goes off, right? just loses it. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, get your finger. I'm not touching you. And, and all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're back to it, and they're arguing. And, and stop it. And, and they're, they're getting angrier and angrier. And, the, and brother, he, he doesn't know how to articulate it. He doesn't know what to say. But what he wants to say in his heart is, you're not touching me, but you're still being annoying. Right? That, that's, how, that's how aggravated he is. And, and, and do you see the difference? That, that there's, there, the heart behind the rule that God announced was actually, don't be annoying. They, they loaded behind God's command, lingering beneath the surface, is the spirit of the command, unspoken. And and the spirit behind the command, no touching, uh, is actually actually something else. It means, hey, what what I really meant, if I turn that into a paragraph, would be, hey, give him peace, and give him quiet, and give him personal space, and give him your respect as this little five-year-old, provocable image-bearer of God, right? It, that's, all, that's all lingering behind the commandment. And it, and, but all he says is no touching. It, do you see the difference between the letter of the law and the this, this spirit of the law behind it? And that's a light example, but, but in a sense, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, the original language given to Moses, uh, the original command was two words, no murder. That's it. That, that, that's the command that God spoke into their world to help guide them. Uh, and, and there's this sense in which, okay, dad's in charge of this community now. I, I, I've freed you from slavery I freed you from the Egyptian. I made you my own. I'm in this pillar, in this cloud. I'm leading you from, from the front seat, so to speak. I, I'm, and we're headed somewhere. 
We're, we're headed to this land that I promised Abraham, this promised land. And when you get there, you're going to have a new vocation. You're going to be the salt of the world. You're going to be the light uh, that shines like a city on a hill to every nation. I'm going to bless every nation on earth through you. And, but, but here's the deal. And they're in the back, right? And they're grumbling. And you know the story. They're grumbling and they're complaining and they're fighting with each other. And, and finally he says, okay, here. This is the way that you should live. No, let's start here. This is easy. No murder. But then you've got guys running around through the centuries to come saying, ha, 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 I didn't murder anyone. I hate your guts, but I'm not touching you. <laughs> right? It, 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 it's that same, I see the letter of the law. I'm not doing what dad said. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's supposed to be going on behind the surface. And so the Pharisees uh, were focused on external actions in the letter of the law to the neglect of what's really going on in the heart. And so by the letter of the law, they do not murder. And by the letter of the law, they don't make physical, intimate contact with a woman that they're not married to in adultery. And by the letter of the law, they don't take more than an eye for an eye. And Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, but you're still jerks. You didn't murder your neighbor. Congratulations. But you still hate him. You still wish that he was dead. You still have all of this seething anger in your heart. You're still sticking out that stubby little finger in the back seat of the van. Your, your heart is not in the right place. That, that's not the kingdom life. That, that, that's not true righteousness. In fact, I want to say that when the boys get older and they're in the back seat and they're fighting. That's not the kingdom life. Put that <laughs> finger away. But, but do, you, do you see what Jesus is getting at here? Heck, you want to murder him, but you restrain yourself and you call him a fool instead. You still have all that anger brewing underneath the surface. And what's going on out there in the external world is important, but so is what's going on in here. Or said another way, the Lord, or Yahweh, does not look at the things people look at, like the Pharisees do. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus says, hey, I, I, I'm after the inside. This is about new creation, not moral striving. You see, what the original crowd might have heard when Jesus made that announcement is that you, the Pharisees, they try hard and fail. So you need to do better and try harder and stop sinning. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 think about your heart. Where, where's your heart at? What's, what's going on in here? And, and, and in fact, throughout Jesus' teachings, he's going to emphasize the importance of the heart over external actions because that's where everything starts. In fact, your life could be visually represented in this way. That at the very core reality uh, of who you are is what the ancient Hebrews would call uh, the heart. They didn't have so much of a separate sense of like soul and heart and all those things. 
but there's this, this heart or soul, um, bedrock personality of who you are. And out of that heart springs up all of your uh, emotions and impulses and initial reactions to events and all of those things come, come bubbling up out of your heart. And from those emotions and impulses and actions, you're making thousands of decisions every day based on those emotions that then translate themselves into outward actions in the visible world. And so all we see in the visible world is whether or not you throw the punch or, or, or whether or not you lift a certain finger when someone cuts you off on the freeway or, or, or where your money physically goes or, or whatever it is, the, how you visibly express your sexuality. And of course, whether or not you murder. It, th- those are all in, in this kind of outward action in the visible world. And all of that outward stuff is important, uh, but, but there's a deeper issue here. What's, what's going on in your heart, Jesus says? I, I want you to, with this visual in mind, I want you to listen to these words of Jesus. This is what he says. He says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up, where? Those of you who know the scriptures. In his heart. In his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Your heart is a deep well from which your thoughts and words and actions spring. What's down in that well is going to come up in the bucket. And so you have all this stuff going on underneath the surface, but all you see is what's on the top. And, and people will use this iceberg analogy for different things. I think it works great for what Jesus is talking about. That an iceberg, as many of you know, floats in the ocean, and you can only see 10% of it above the surface. 10% of it is visible. And 90% lies hidden beneath the waves. And Jesus is saying, hey, stop staring at that top little part of the iceberg and declaring to the world whether or not you are righteous. There's all this stuff going on beneath the surface that matters just as much, if not more, that actually is more of who you are, what lies beneath the surface. And and, and I want all of it. Here's the deal. If you surrender to Jesus, the, the deepest parts of your heart, the deepest core of who you are, He will renew your heart in such a way that you won't be constantly fighting against your impulses and constantly trying to change your outward actions. You are going to have new impulses altogether. And that's actually easier than what the Pharisees are attempting to do. And it's more righteous. And it's more fitting. And it's more pure. And it's more holistic. Jesus is saying, hey, give give me the deep stuff. Don't just refrain from murder and and stop there. There is a whole nother level of righteousness that I'm after. So if you're you're going about your life, Jesus says, and and in those outward actions, you can actually leave this one up for a while. Thanks, Brandon. In those outward actions, things are spilling out, right? You're you're seeing anger. You're feeling the the impulse uh, to, to murder or, or whatever it is, if there's stuff going off wrong in the visible world, Jesus is saying, you're actually in danger of missing out on the kingdom. Not because you said a cuss word 
as this passage has been read to say, do you see how easily we can slip into this moralistic way of thinking about Jesus' teachings? Okay, the Pharisees have a code. And, and, and it's hard. But it's not hard enough. So here comes Jesus to give us a new code that's even harder. A new standard. Oh yeah, don't ever cuss. Oh yeah, and if you do, then you're going to go to hell. That, that is literally how some Christian churches will, will teach and interpret this passage. But isn't that how we view Sermon on the Mount? I mean, we don't even know what to do with this stuff. Okay, so it's all about grace. And it, that's, the, that's the entirety of the spiritual. It's all about grace, right? And then here comes Jesus with all this impossible stuff. And, and, and so what well, people will say, well, Jesus just gave Sermon on the Mount as a new law. And just like Paul tells us, the law was actually given to to just crush any hopes of us being successful and to drive us toward God out of our need for him. So surely that's what Jesus is doing here. He just lays out something impossible so that we'll we'll throw our hands up and say, well, this is, forget it. I just need the grace of God. We're forced to choose between the two. This is either an impossible command that drives us into the grace of God or we keep the command and we use it to judge ourselves or others by those commands. And, and both of those, are, they're either ignoring the teachings of Jesus altogether or turning them into a legalistic code which we strive to live for. And, and neither of those it, it, are what Jesus is actually after. There's this question hanging in the air. What on earth do we do with this teaching? How, how do we move forward under the authority of these words of Jesus? And, and it would have just been sitting there on the disciples' hearts as they were listening. What do I, what do, I do with this? But when you look at the meta-narrative, at, at the big picture, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is now available to you. And as a result, God can give you a new heart, a transformed heart, in a way that he never could in any other time period throughout history. And you will be, in the words of the New Testament, a new creation. And if you let God do the transformative work down here, everything else is going to start to fall into place. The the only way to do this, this is the only way to fill the spirit behind the law. This is the only way to become more righteous than the Pharisees. Only then will you truly accomplish what Jesus is after. In addition uh, to being a pastor here, I have a couple other jobs on the side that I use to kind of make ends meet while we're in this initial, you know, year or two church planting phase. Uh, And one of my jobs is as a substitute teacher in the Spokane Public Schools District. And um, a a few months ago, I went in for my very first day, a fifth grade classroom, very first day on the job, and um, walk in there, and I'm kind of looking around the classroom, and they have all this artwork that students have done um, pinned up on the wall. And one of them, in, in particular, caught my attention. This is what it said. It said, a healthy mind, don't talk ill about others. This is just a fifth grader, like, doodling at their desk. And so my very first thought when I saw this is, well, I don't even think that's proper English. Um, but, but my second thought was, oh, oh my goodness, I, I think that's the Sermon on the Mount. I, I think this is what Jesus is getting after. That he, if you have a healthy mind, if you have a healthy, renewed, transformed heart, and, and at the deepest level, 
then that's not going to be your impulse. It, that, that's not going to be what's naturally spilling out of your mouth above the surface. And, and, and this, this is what the world needs. If you've been paying attention, you know that the last couple of weeks have highlighted deep divisions in our country between the right and the left, between uh, citizens and non-citizens of various kinds, between uh, Americans and uh, the Middle East. And, and through all of those um, controversies that have been sparked and the way that these events are portrayed in the media, we have had so much opportunity for seething anger and for hatred and for those words to come spilling out of our mouth, regardless of what side you take, regardless of where your, your politics are, we have plenty of opportunity to wish that someone were dead. Hey, I, I would never kill that extremist, that politician, that congressperson, that lawyer, that law-breaking foreigner. I, I, would, I would never kill them. I don't murder, but I wish that somebody would. And Jesus says, if you let that mentality creep into your heart and mind, and you let that type of anger begin to consume you, it, it becomes it is so toxic that you will risk losing the kingdom. Over time, you will actually become an evil, hate-filled person who isn't operating in the spirit of God or in the kingdom, but in the flesh and in seething anger. And Jesus says, if you head that direction, you're actually in danger of the fire of hell. That's not how God's renewed people operate. You are the light of the world, and that's not light. And these words that slip out, rakah, which in the ancient Near East was a, a casual, angry word that you would just use in passing, and you fool, which is this more intentional, deliberate cutting at someone, and, and what an idiot, and what a loser, and all of those little four-letter words that, that, that I can't say in church. And, and Jesus says, even these seemingly idle words betray something deeper that's going on beneath the surface. That, that in your hatred, you've actually placed yourself on a pedestal above other people. That you actually are valuing your well-being or your political views or your whatever above theirs. That you value your life above theirs. And, and, and that's, that's not operating in the kingdom of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer a well-known well Christian uh, who opposed Nazi Germany purposely from the inside of Nazi Germany uh, and who was eventually executed by the Nazis for his resistance. He had plenty of room for hatred in the midst of what he was going through and what he witnessed. But instead, he says these words. He says, anger is an attack on a brother's life. For it refuses to let him live and aims at his destruction. There is no distinction here between righteous or justifiable anger and that which isn't. He just calls his disciples to be completely innocent of anger, as anger itself is an offense against God and neighbor. 
The angry word is a blow struck at our brother, a stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and to destroy. A deliberate insult is even worse, for we are then openly disgracing our brother in the eyes of the world and causing others to despise him. Our brother is anyone, a human being, an image bearer. With our hearts burning with hatred, we seek to annihilate his moral and material existence. We are passing judgment on him, and that is murder. So instead of being consumed by anger and bitterness, Jesus says, there is a new way forward as you operate in this upside-down, in-breaking kingdom of God. First, Jesus says, practice reconciliation. And on a related note, make friends even out of your enemies. If you have your Bibles open, we're picking up in verse 23 as we kind of land the plane and end the teaching here. Jesus continues with these words. He says, Therefore, in light of everything I've just said about toxic anger in the kingdom, here are some alternatives. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Be reconciled, Jesus says, and make peace. And, and he uses temple imagery to make his point. Uh, now, there's, there's a bit of comedy here in Jesus' words that, that's lost on us thousands of years later. But the point that Jesus is trying to illustrate is very simple. Reconciliation as an alternative to anger is so important that it takes priority over worship. In many synagogues in the ancient Near East, uh, men and women sat in uh, separate areas, mostly so the men wouldn't be distracted. We'll talk about that more next week. Uh, but not only did the men sit in separate places, but the uh, seating for uh, the men and even for the women occasionally in these ancient synagogues was kind of, would have been along these walls um, facing each other. There's actually a, a basic diagram of uh, one of the layouts of a synagogue in the ancient Near East. And you can see that the seats, the speaker's kind of at the front, but they're all seated facing each other. People thought, well, that's kind of curious. And so one of, one of the theories behind why they were seated this way is that it would encourage reconciliation. Because if you're sitting there and everyone in the town is like going into the synagogue, right? And so suddenly you're in the synagogue and you're staring across uh, at, at that person, at that girl, at that guy, at the neighbor that you hate at the politician that, that you wish were dead, at, at that, that dirty Democrat, at, at that two-faced Republican, whoever, whoever that object was of your hatred. And you, suddenly you were facing them as you were hearing the rabbi reading the scriptures to you and saying you are, are called to, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Oh, even that, even that person that I'm looking at right now? 
And, and what it did, in theory, is that you would, be, you would be encouraged to reconcile with your neighbor before coming up to the front of the synagogue to pray. How, how beautiful is that? In the rabbi's mind, there, there was no divorce between love of, of people and love of God. They, they were completely linked. And, and so what Jesus is doing is he's taking this to an almost comical extreme because he's standing on a hillside in Galilee and he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, which um, it, most of us don't know because we don't know ancient Middle Eastern geography or whatever, but this was a three-day grueling walk through the desert between one and the next. You, you had to be very intentional to go up to Jerusalem, and you would go up to Jerusalem, up this mountain, and you would buy an animal, sacrificial animal, and you'd wait your turn to go up to the altar, sacrifice your animal as this gift to God, and, and then make the three-day trek back. And Jesus says, hey, if you trek all the way over there, three days, and you get your little goat, and, and you're headed up to the front, and you're in line, and you're prayerfully reflecting on the God of love and his faithfulness to you, and all of a sudden you realize, whoa, I haven't been loving, and I haven't been super, oh my gosh, I actually need to be reconciled. Somebody has something against me. The text actually says a minutia of anything. So picture that. You're, you're in line. You walk three days to get there, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, like my great aunt Letty and I like had this terrible argument at the family reunion last time, and oh my gosh, my roommate, we're so distant right now. I've been so rude to them about the cleanliness of, of our dorm room. And, like, and, and also, he's saying, leave your goat, get out of line, go to the back of the temple, tie it to a stone bench or whatever, go outside and pick some grass for the goat, and then walk three days back to the Galilee, find your roommate or whoever, and reconcile with them face to face, repair that relationship, and then walk three days back and take the, the, what's left of your scrawny sacrifice, who's been starving for a week, and then take him up to the altar and do it. Ridiculous. People would, would have literally been laughing at this point because it's so funny. Like, who would do that? But, but the point that Jesus is trying to make it, it is a simple one. This takes priority over worship. Is worship of God important? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's worth walking days this reconciliation of new kingdom people it's part of a new humanity. This is even more important. You, you do this first. Even with the people that the world says are your enemies, you do this. In fact, Jesus says, if your enemy or your adversary is taking you to court, don't stand on the high ground and assume you're going to win. For starters, you could be dead wrong. And you could get into that courtroom or you could stand before God at the end of time in judgment and find out, whoa, I was on the wrong end of that. Don't even bank on that. Rather, go and be reconciled to them. Come down off your pedestal, back down to the street level, shoulder to shoulder with every other image bearer. You're not better than them. And, and walk humbly in reconciliation. There is no murder in the kingdom of heaven. But there is so much more than the absence of murder. And, and if you stop at refraining from murder and you call it righteousness, you are missing out on what it means to be the light of the world. That's not true gospel transformation. That's not the true righteousness of God dwelling in human beings. 
God patiently endures his enemies until they are curiously somehow won over as his friend and ally. Go and do the same, he says. That, that, that's the spirit behind the law. That's this vision of flourishing humanity as God intended. You are the light of the world. So as we close, today's takeaways um, are pretty simple. First, if you're taking notes, don't murder. Pretty simple. Please, as a, as a um, member of our community, as part of River's Edge, just don't. Just don't, okay? Don't murder anyone. But, Jesus is saying, hey, hey, while you're at it, let's deal with seething anger that sits and lingers and, and weighs you down and puts toxic roots into the soil of your heart. Hey, let, let's deal with that stuff. That actually has to go too. Because I want more for you than that. And so as alternatives to anger and bitterness and self-righteousness, practice reconciliation and make friends with your adversaries. Why? Why is this so important in Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom? Because when you get angry at a brother or sister and, and you curse them and you curse at them or you, or you defile them and even in their absence, you cut yourself off not just from them, but you distance yourself from God at the same time. For the disciple... Worship cannot be divorced from our humble service of the rest of humanity. They cannot be made, and the rabbis would have understood this. If you despise another human being, and, and then we come before God with our hearts full of that contempt and, and anger and bitterness, unreconciled to our neighbors, we are both, as individuals and as a community, we are worshiping an idol. That, that is not the true God. And that is not how the true God wants to be worshipped. We'll end with this, with this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says, There's therefore only one way of following and worshipping God, and that is to be reconciled with others. If we come to hear the word of God and receive the sacrament in a gathering without first being reconciled with our neighbors, we shall come to our own damnation. In the sight of God, we are murderers. And so by grace, we're still here. And chances are that our enemy, our adversary, the person we are unreconciled with, is also still here. And we have an opportunity to be reconciled with them. But one day that opportunity will be gone. And, and, and if we operate in anger instead of reconciliation, we're going to have a really hard time standing before God's throne and actually explaining uh, how and why we lived our life like that. If we refuse to humble ourselves and be reconciled and serve our fellow human beings, uh, there's a chance that we will be made to pay the last cent. It could, it could cost you everything. So as we end the teaching, we're going to um, open the communion table, as we always do. Um, and and uh, for us, for followers of Jesus, um, th this is our altar. 
and, and this is actually, if you read through the story of the scriptures, um, this is actually the altar to which all um, the altars of Israel were pointing forward toward, where a sacrifice was offered. But instead of coming to this altar to um, make a sacrifice, we have tithes and offerings, which is our form of sacrifice. But the, the main point of the table is actually that we would receive the sacrifice of God on our behalf. We, we don't earn our way in with a moral code or by never cussing or some strange moralist. No, no, no. Th- this is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. We are all about communion. We are all about receiving open-handedly from God. But... Uh, as a community, honestly, we cannot afford to divorce our, our worship and, and love of God uh, with, with our love of people. And so I, I'm going to do something um, today that I, I've actually never done in, in my years as a pastor. And that's that I, I'm actually going to invite you um, to decide whether or not it makes sense for you to take communion today. And the reason is this. If you're coming to the altar in the words of Jesus and, and, and you remember that you're unreconciled with someone, Jesus says no, that, that's actually more important. And, and if you keep going through religious motions and you remain unreconciled, not only do these unreconciled people look in on the community and hold a grudge against that community, which has its own set of problems, but more importantly, it, it, you're not fully worshiping God as, as he intended. And so before we um, go to the altar today, we actually want to leave some room right now really practically for reconciliation. And so for some of you, um, that might look like um, talking to someone in this room, maybe even the person that you came with or, or that you're seated next to, and, and saying, hey, it, we, we need to come back together. We need to be reconciled in these areas. Uh, for some of you, it will mean um, joining our, our prayer team along the far wall over here. And just offering, putting something in Jesus' hands, saying, Jesus, I, it's, it takes everything I have to let go of this bitterness, but you, you take it. I am now open to reconciliation. For some of you, it, it's just pulling out an iPhone and, and saying, hey, I'm, we need to talk. Send. If that's too complicated, for some of you, just sorry. Send. And, and for the rest of us, um, it, if nothing immediately comes to mind, um, that no one comes to mind that you want to text or, or talk to in this room um, or, or pray about with a prayer team, uh, for the rest of us, we're just going to use these next couple of minutes, three, five, six minutes, whatever it takes, um, and we're going to be in prayer, um, not only for reconciliation within this community, not only for reconciliation within our families and networks of friends and people who aren't represented here, uh, it, but, but we're also going to be just kind of listening, saying, God, am I missing something? Is there someone, in Jesus' words, is there a minutia of, of broken relationship that, that's rooted in anger and bitterness that, that I can surrender today before I come to the altar. Uh, and, and that's actually something that I encourage you to do kind of weekly. The scriptures actually say, examine yourselves before taking communion so that you don't drink judgment on yourself. So that you don't divorce worship of God from the reality of the need for reconciliation for human beings. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and invite uh, Micaiah back up here. And uh, we're just going to hang out for a few minutes. I'll pray for us. 
And then I'd encourage you as individuals, head over to, to this side if you want to pray with somebody, and the prayer team can head over there now. Um, there's just no judgment in this place. I, I actually had the advantage of wrestling with this all week. And I can promise you God was bringing people to mind. Oh, I got to send that text message. I, I got to send that email. I, I don't want to head into this Sunday without getting that done. I, I got to sit down face to face with her. I got, and, and I had that opportunity. You guys, I'm just springing it on you. So you don't have as much time. You don't have a week to process. But the heart behind it, it is, is a simple one, that this is, is Jesus' heart for reconciliation as an alternative to anger in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we just recognize that uh, the scriptures are um, really powerful, God, and really challenging. Um, and honestly, um, it's, it's not... Uh, the popular thing in our culture to um, sit under conviction and let it change us. But Jesus, ultimately, um, we want and desire your kingdom. We want and desire um, full transformation at the deepest level of our being. Far more than we want to hold on to grudges. Far more than we want anger and bitterness to rule. And so Jesus, as we head into this time, uh, as, as simple a prayer as we can pray, as we say, Holy Spirit, bring freedom in this place. We are so easily enslaved by the patterns of this world, and anger is one of them. Bitterness is one of them. Broken relationships is one of them. Would you bring freedom? Would you, would you empower us to be the light of the world, not on our own steam, not because we think we can earn something by it, but because we see you, Jesus, we see a picture of you, we're called deeper by you, and, and that's worth more. There's, there's nothing in this world, there's no grudge that we could hold that would be worth more than, than taking hold of the kingdom of God. And so, Jesus, as we sit and reflect in these moments, guide our thoughts, guide our prayers, guide our text messages, Make us a free people in your name. Amen.